You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR broadcasts on the sovereign land of the Wurrung people and the Bunurung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and we acknowledge that a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm your host, Paddy, and let me start by congratulating everyone on getting through two weeks of Stage 4 restrictions. Over the weekend, there was some good news in terms of new infections. There was less than 300 in Victoria on Saturday and 279 on Sunday. I hope you're all feeling good. We've got a busy show for you this morning. We're starting off with an interview uh, with... Dr. Dennis Muller, Senior Research Fellow from the Centre for Advancement of Journalism at Melbourne Uni. He's on the show this morning to analyse the media coverage around COVID-19 in Australia. After that, we're going to revisit an interview we did in early April with Professor Bill Mitchell from the University of Newcastle. He's an economist renowned for developing modern monetary theory, and he's going to break down for us the role of government in dealing with the economic fallout from COVID-19. Later in the show, we're going to revisit Claudia's interview with Michael Simmons from Holt, talking about depression and suicide among tradies, which is even more pertinent now since Stage 4 restrictions have shut down a lot of building sites. And to round out the show, Alice is going to give us the headlines that emerged from Australia and around the world last week. It's a lot of information to get through, so let's start things off softly with a song. Here's Twice a Fool. My number one dad's. We stay up late watching late night movies. I stay up late.
It's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal trust run on a health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. To start off the show this morning, I wanted to take a critical look at the Australian media's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the weekend, I spoke to Dr Dennis Muller, who is Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. We talk about the pattern media coverage follows when it comes to events like pandemics and bushfires. And Dr Muller starts off by outlining for us 
the media coverage of the hotel quarantine situation in Victoria, and how that fits in the development of the larger story. The newspapers, in particular The Age and Sydney Morning Herald and the ABC, have started to get leaks of material. The government has resolutely said it won't be entering into a discussion about what went wrong with hotel quarantine until the inquiry by the retired judge, Jennifer Cote, is completed. But of course, that hasn't stopped uh, the media from trying to find out what went wrong. And now we've got leaks of emails, we've got a whistleblower coming forward. And the picture that is beginning to emerge is one of bureaucratic um, confusion, um, good intentions gone badly wrong, uh, and basically a lack of appreciation of the shortcomings of private uh, security firms. The leaked emails that have been published by The Age uh, tell us that the uh, Department of Jobs, Precincts and Regions, which is a, um, one of the departments of the Victorian government, had carriage of setting up the hotel quarantine security arrangements uh, in circumstances of great haste. And that they gave contracts to three security firms, one of which, Unified Security, was a company that had um, a, a track record of working with the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and uh, was basically a company that gave employment to underprivileged people. And one of the reasons, according to the emails, that unified security was included in the security arrangements for the hotels was that it, um, its employment practices of disadvantaged people um, met the criteria of the state government's inclusion uh, inclusiveness um, policy policies so the companies that had inclusive employment policies um, were entitled to get their share of government work and so uh, this firm uh, was was engaged the other aspect of it that came out in the emails was the involvement of an outfit called Victoria Global which is the state government international trading and um, and commercial wing, um, the, the part of the government that promotes Victoria as a place to do business, an organisation that has no obvious qualifications to be involved in security or, or quarantine, they got involved too in the, um, in the contracting of the private security firms. And so the picture that emerged was of good intentions, under pressure, basically badly managed, and you finished up with um, a security arrangement which was suboptimal. So that's one part of it. The other part of it was that some senior person in this department of jobs, precincts and regions realised that there was a problem and wrote to the Department of Health and to Emergency Services Victoria saying you need to get the police down there. They need to be down there 24-7 supervising this security operation, but 
according to the emails um, and according to Victoria Police, no request to the police was ever made and so the police never went. So that was one lot of revelations. And the second lot came from a nurse who was a whistleblower to the ABC. She said she had been involved in hotel quarantine and she had observed the pressure that the security guards came under from some of the guests, some of the returned travellers, who became quite aggressive, uh, who insisted on having uh, free time outside, wanting cigarette breaks, this kind of thing. And the security staff who were employed to do this were completely ill-equipped to deal with that level of pressure and so caved into it. And you had, according to this nurse, uh, a number of occasions where people were, were, um, were taking breaks from hotel quarantine, which were quite unauthorised and against the rules. So that's the picture as far as we know it at the moment. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of moving parts there. And you write that we've entered the blame phase or the accountability phase of media coverage of this pandemic and that media coverage of similar disasters follows a similar trajectory. Could you walk us through what that trajectory looks like? Yes. When there's a disaster, of course, the first focus is on what's happened. What's, what's been the nature of the disaster? How many people have been killed or injured? How much property has been destroyed? Um, all of those um, material impacts of, of the disaster, what, what we call the impact phase. And the second phase of the, of the coverage, which follows hard on the first, is how have the authorities responded? If you take bushfires, for example, what's been the size of the fires? What have they done? What have they burnt? Uh, who's been killed? And what are, the, what are the fire brigade doing and the other emergency services? So impact and response are the first two phases. And then very often in disasters, you get a sort of a grieving phase. Uh, where the focus turns to loss, to what people say with their personal experiences, what they've lost. There's a kind of hero phase which goes along with that, which is you know, heroic stories of bravery and so on, stories of miraculous um, survival. You get a phase that goes through those kinds of things. And then you get to this blame phase where people start... Uh, or the media start looking at what went wrong. How did this, um, how was this caused? Was the response adequate? What lessons have we learned? Uh, who fell down on the job? That becomes a phase later in the story generally. But it's a tricky question for the media when to start getting into that because if you get into it too soon, uh, it becomes offensive to the affected community. And we know from research I did after the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 that if the media, for example, in Victoria, who was reporting to the Victorian community, got into the blame game too soon, it generated a very negative response from the community. The community was still grieving. The community were prepared to wait and see uh, what the shortcomings had been. They didn't want to be confronted with fault and blame at a time when they thought that, that unity uh, and uh, pulling together were the most, important, um, the most important things to be focusing on. This time, 
the media in Victoria have been getting into the blame game about three weeks ago. And there has been some blowback. Um, we saw a case where a reporter um, called Rachel Baxendale from The Australian, who was asking some very pointed questions of the Premier at a news conference last week, getting death threats on social media. Shocking state of affairs. But an indicator that perhaps the media were getting into the blame game a bit too soon for the, um, for the community's liking. I have noticed that on Twitter that there seems to be two groups. Uh, there seems to be ardent Dan Andrews supporters, and then there seems to be an, a second group of uh, the hashtag dictator Dan who are sort of ready to start apportioning blame. But um, that that is an that's an interesting notion that you know maybe we're not quite ready uh, for the blame portion of this since the pandemic is still still really going, and in Victoria, read it head in such a ugly way. Uh, one yes. aspect of media coverage I've noticed consistently across the media, ma mainstream outlets is the use of live blogs to cover developments about COVID-19. Do you have any thoughts on this kind of moment-to-moment -moment reporting and how it affects readers? I think it's great. I, so long as it's done with accuracy. The, of course, always the risk with this moment-to-moment -moment reporting is that people get things wrong. But... I think it's been one of the great benefits of, um, of digital technology that we are able to get reports in, almost in real time of major events, um, not just in a case like this, but for example, in, in very important court cases. People are now able to, to report directly from the court, more or less as the proceedings are unfolding. I think that's terrific but always with the caveat that the reporting be accurate. Uh, when, and this is a problem, of course, with, uh, with a lot of what's on social media, when unreliable material gets out, or material which is just, just designed to, um, to inflame people's feelings, it's very destructive. But as a, as a technology which enables the public to be informed rapidly and accurately, uh, I think it's a great boon. Um, and on that topic of inflammatory uh, content, in the early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of xenophobia, uh, but now that racism seems to be including uh, a lot of different communities. Could you speak about how media coverage has caused or facilitated this? Yes. Um, there's been a lot of focus on non-English speaking communities. Uh, particularly in the north and west of Melbourne. And there's been, it's not been overt, but there's been an undertone in some of the coverage uh, that these people um, aren't really quite fitting in. And of course, once more, the primary focus or the primary target of this kind of coverage has been the African community. There's a, a, quite a substantial proportion of the people who live in the towers in Flemington and Kensington uh, who are African um, refugees uh, or of African uh, descent. And they have in particular been the target of a renewed bout of anti-African sentiment of the kind that we've seen since, well, about 2007. Uh, when um, the focus began on Africans as being people who 
to quote our former immigration minister, Kevin Andrews, uh, weren't fitting in. And that was a very damaging thing to say. And it's, you can see how it has now been revived in the context of this pandemic, particularly when the towers in Kensington and Flemington were in lockdown. My, my final question, um, as a volunteer broadcaster, is for advice to me and other journalists about how to report on issues like COVID-19 and the stories it produces in the most ethical way. Well, firstly, get your facts right. Um, secondly, report well within the compass of the known information. Don't speculate. Uh, use language which is proportional. Don't beat things up or use overdramatic language or language which is calculated to panic and frighten people. Certainly, if there's bad news, we have to, we have to report it. But there are ways of reporting bad news which are informative, and there are ways of reporting bad news which just cause panic. And it is no part of our job as journalists to cause panic. Our job is to inform. And we've seen what happens when, when people panic. We've seen panic buying in supermarkets. We've seen the inflaming of prejudice. And it's not so much what we do, but how we do it, that in the end is the important thing. That was Dr. Dennis Muller from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's important to maintain a critical lens when we examine any media, but especially the coverage of such emotionally charged subjects like pandemics. It was good to have that reminder from the doctor about the importance of ethics in journalism. You're listening to 3CR and this is Monday Breakfast, waking you up for the week. And now here's Alice Skye with I Feel Better, But I Don't Feel Good.
You're waking up with Monday Breakfast on 3CR Radical Radio. Last week on Alternative News, we were discussing how job-rich climate solutions might be a path towards economic recovery, as suggested by a report from Environment Victoria. Well, this week I wanted to revisit our interview from April with economist Professor Bill Mitchell to get some perspective on the economic situation. Because if you're anything like me, words like deficit, recession, and economy are almost meaningless, at least in the sense that they carry no emotional meaning. Professor Mitchell is fantastic at cutting through the jargon and getting to the underlying facts. Here's the professor explaining for us the difference between a recession and a depression. The the term recession has a very specific technical meaning. And what it means is that gross domestic product, so that's the total market value of goods and services produced in a period, that has to be, the growth in GDP has to be negative for two consecutive quarters for there to be officially a recession. If the economy just contracts for one quarter, so that's a 12 or 13 week period, then that's not considered a recession. It's just considered a sort of temporary downturn in activity. But if that downturn then uh, moves into the second quarter and for the second period there's negative growth, that's called a recession. And now that can be very deep where the contractions are very severe. It can be very mild where the contractions are still negative but are still there, negative GDP growth, but not as severe. Now, when it comes to a depression, there's no real technical definition for a depression. A depression is uh, typically recessions are, very, are relatively short-lived. Uh, they, they might be two or three quarters at a maximum. And the economy, they can be very severe, but they, they, the economy takes a dive and then it, usually the government enters the picture, provides some support for the economy, which, which we call a fiscal stimulus, uh, some spending support or cutting taxes or whatever, and the economy starts to recover again relatively quickly. It doesn't mean it's not a severe event, but it's a relatively short-lived event historically. Now, depression is is qualitatively more severe than that. We don't have the two negative quarters definition. A a depression is where the contraction in GDP is very severe and it's it's long-lasting. So in in our recent history, uh, Greece, for example, during the global financial crisis and afterwards entered a depression, because its economy shrunk by around 25%, and it's still about 25% smaller okay. after, 10, after 10 years. So, so that's, that's a very severe event, a very big damage to uh, incomes lost and sustained losses, whereas, for example, the US and, and the UK during the global financial crisis had deep recessions, but they didn't last for 10 years. They lasted for a year, maybe. Both are very undesirable. Now, in terms of what's going to happen this time, uh, it's probable we'll have a recession, but it's not, it's not unavoidable. And this is where the role of, uh, of government comes into play. 
And what is that role? Well, effectively, the government is the currency issuer. So, so the currency that we use as households and business firms use, uh, the, that's issued by the government and it's the only body that issues that currency. And so it, it has unlimited spending power. And what it's constrained by are the real resources that are available for, to be bought by the government, that's productive resources, labour and, and what have you. And uh, uh, if, if it tries to spend too much and therefore drive excessive demand for real resources, too much spending chasing the resources, then there'd be inflation. But if there's a lot of I likelihood of a lot of idle resources, like unemployed workers, then the government can buy all of them, their use, uh, temporarily or longer term, depending what's the situation, and not creating, it has no constraint in doing that. And so the role of government, in my view, is always to avoid recessions by stepping into the, the gap, the spending gap, because resources are used productively if there's demand for them. And firms demand labour, for example, because they can put the labour to work and produce things which they can sell. sell. Now, if sales, sales start dropping, then firms lay off workers. And so what the government has the capacity to do is to fill that spending gap and make sure that those workers remain with incomes and employed. And if it does that properly, it can minimise the downturn. So in my mind, that would be one of the more, the shorter term uh, solutions, I suppose. And then what, what kind of the, what are the longer term reforms that we need to see in Australia to, to combat how our economy works in response to these crises in the future? The, 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 the thing I, I've been saying, and I've been saying it for quite a while, of course, but is that um, this crisis is a very bad health crisis for our society and the, and the world. It's, it's the word that's being bandied around by everybody is unprecedented. Well, it's not really. I mean, <laughs> uh, we've had Spanish flu a hundred years ago. You know, we had the plague in the, in the medieval period. So we, we have these issues and uh, typically we've been able to control them through better hygiene and better health care and more understanding of those issues. But there's all these viruses out there and uh, this one's just uh, popped up and creating havoc. So, but before that came along, the, the Australian economy was not in good shape at all. And uh, if you think about it, we've currently got 13.7% of our willing labour resources, either unemployed, that's not working at all, or underemployed, working part-time but wanting more hours and not being able to find enough work. And the, the national income losses of that and, the, and therefore the income losses to families of 13.7% of your available labour not working sufficiently is, is hu uh, huge. And we had um, worsening inequality, income and wealth inequality, as characteristic of this neoliberal era. We've had a degradation of our public service delivery. Uh, our public infrastructure has been run down. 
our education systems, our health systems, our transport systems are not functioning very well. The privatisations of the 90s and afterwards of our, say, our transport and energy sectors have created unreliable electricity generation and, um, and very expensive energy. Uh, our telecommunication system, the NBN, was meant to take us into the next century almost, and it's, a, and it's proven to be a disaster because of penny-pinching on behalf of the government. And on top of all of that, that's all of those. And we've got the gig economy mm. where young, young people are now scootering around everywhere delivering food for, for peanuts, basically, uh, with no security, no job security, no uh, um, entitlements like leave pay, sick pay. They've got to provide their own scooters and equipment and they've got no superannuation being paid in for them and so and no career prospects mm. and, a, and more and more young people are relying on that sort of work not realizing that that's a that it, that's a short-term fix for them maybe because there's a lack of decent work but it's a long-term disaster for them because they're going to get old and uh and not have the sort of uh stored up entitlements that that their parents mostly were able to achieve through superannuation and so we've got you know we've got precarious work we've got 25 percent of our workforce who are employed without in those entitlements uh increased casualization so you know put the, that's a social disaster all of that and then on top of that we've got an ecological disaster face in front of us and while we're worried at the moment about the health medical problem really we 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 went into this with an environmental crisis which needs a massive transformation in production and consumption patterns uh, which needs a massive uh, uh, change in the role of the state relative to the non-government sector uh, the state is going to have to become much more important in our lives in driving the transition away from carbon and in and, and and when we and so we've got all these challenges so we've got to move from carbon to non-carbon and we've got to improve the quality and quantity of work we've got to restore the scope and quality of our public services and infrastructure and they're the sort of long-term challenges once we get over this health crisis the, all of those things are still staring us in the face and undermining our society and you know you might people are, uh, are reflecting on oh our health systems under a lot of strain and health systems around the world are under a lot of stress now well one of the reasons for that is in this neoliberal period the obsession with running fiscal surpluses by our governments has underspent on essential and crucial infrastructure uh, a very myopic strategy uh, uh, thinking that nothing bad's going to happen tomorrow and then when there's a, a crisis arises like we have on our hands now we don't have the the, the quality of our and quantity of health services uh, available and that worsens the problem and this is happening all around the world not only in health but uh, it, you know there's been major uh, flood damage in Britain in the last few years 
because the British government was running, trying to run surpluses and didn't spend enough on flood mitigation works and improving their, their, their flood uh, emergency systems. And you, you can go on and on with the, the collapse of our public transports around the world, you know, and uh, uh, all of these things are, are, are expressions or manifestations of the same problem the, the, the stupidity of trying to run fiscal surpluses. What can world leaders learn from uh, this coronavirus crisis and the economic effects of it to apply to climate, the climate crisis? Because I've seen sort of even the Australian government less partisan and uh, sort of more interaction between uh, global actors. Well, if the, the first, first answer is what can we learn from it? as citizens because we elect our leaders and what what we can learn from it is that we've been duped for years by economists my profession they've lied to people they've created a fictional world that's told us that governments should run surpluses that they should rely on the market to deliver essential services that if you privatize essential services like energy you'll get better outcomes like public transport, you privatise that, you'll get better outcomes. Uh, that it, that you, uh, uh, if you starve telecommunication, telecommunication sector, you'll get better outcomes. And, uh, you know, the NBN's a classic case in our recent history where the government started to penny pinch. It's ended up costing, it's ending up, uh, they've got to invest more than they, they would have if they had just stuck to the, fibre to the home, they've got a system that's uh, patched together that's not going to work. It doesn't work under stress. They've forced the NBN company to uh, chase commercial returns when the, the public infrastructure should be delivering social services, not, not profits. Uh, and, and so we've been brought into this uh, to believe in this uh, mythical world that if the government runs surpluses, that's desirable. And if it runs deficits, it's undesirable. And that's been, that's been the message of neoliberalism, that uh, uh, co-opt the government um, to do the work for, the, for capital and the elites and uh, to uh, run down social, social welfare systems, to uh, not intervene in labour markets to protect workers' conditions cut penalty rates on the most disadvantaged workers. We've got the casual workers. You know, who are the most important workers right now? Well, it's very low, low paid cleaners and nurses. Mm. They're, they're our most important workers. It's not the bankers and the lawyers and the stockbrokers that are very important right now. And we've been led to, we've, we've got, a, we've been induced by narratives and uh, think tanks and, uh, a biased media to have this skewed version of the world. So what we can learn from this is that suddenly the government's got billions to spend. We've got a health emergency on our hand. The government's just spent, what, $133 billion last Wednesday they legislated. Well, where did that money come from? It was always there. And, and, and it's just now that all of us are, uh, are facing, uh, you know, extension problems for health reasons that the government can spend $133 billion. 
And so the question then, and so all these questions that come up when you ask for more money for the unemployed, some public sector job creation, uh, 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 renewable energy projects, etc., etc. The conservatives always say, well, how are you going to pay for it? The government hasn't got any money. Well, what we now know is that the government's got unlimited amounts of money. It can, it can uh, click its fingers and type money in, type numbers into bank accounts and the money's created. It doesn't, it's, it's there, it's paid for. And, uh, and what we've got to as citizens force on our leaders through the political process after this is over, that if they can do it for health emergency, they can do it for a climate emergency. And we don't want any penny pinching. We want, the, we want big projects, ambitious projects, where we decarbonise by 2030, because otherwise we'll be extinct for different reasons. And so that's what the leaders can learn. That, and what they can learn is that we now know what the game is. We now know that they can spend as much as, 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 much as is necessary to make the, the, the big changes. And, you know, there's been all these discussions, analogies in the last few weeks about, oh, we've got to go to war on this crisis. Well, we've got to go to war on poverty, on inequality, on unemployment, on underemployment and on climate uh, action. And all of those have got to be declared war efforts and the, number, and the government has to, has to take the responsibility on our behalf. That's what they now know, that we know. And we know something very powerful, the government has got unlimited amounts of cash. That was Professor Bill Mitchell from the University of Newcastle talking us through the economics of pandemics and other global problems. This interview was recorded back in April, but his points about how the government should be spending money and resources remain just as true. It seems ridiculous to me that Australia is still looking at fracking as a viable path to economic recovery when the symptoms of climate change burned across the country at the beginning of this year. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and here's 2000 and Something by Kate. Roll off and pass it while the lights are all still green Look at myself and realize the world's eyes are on our phone screens So caught up in the world around me No tools stop caring how strangers view me I was born in the wrong year, the wrong time This now my destiny so on. Where you at? 1962. It's been a minute since we kicked it. Heard you got the new tattoo. Had no friends, so I had to sit with him. Now I can quit it. So I said, Where you at? 1962. It's been a minute since we kicked it. Heard you got the new tattoo. Had no friends, so I had to sit with him. Now I can quit it Quit it, 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 it. Quit it, 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 it. Quit it, 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 it. 
Understand that what is going on is bound to be All this hatred in the world I'm surprised the earth is still turning So caught up in the world around me Me too stop caring how strangers view me I was born in the wrong years, the wrong time This not my destiny Where you at? 1962, it's been a minute since we kicked it Heard you got the new tattoo Had no friends, so I had the shit with him Now I can quit it So I said, where you at? 1962, it's been a minute since we kicked it Heard you got the new tattoo Had no friends, so I had the shit with the feeling now I can quit it, 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 it. Back in July, Claudia interviewed Michael Simmons from HALT, which stands for Hope and Assistance for Local Tradies. And it's an organization that's really concerned by the overrepresentation of tradespeople in our suicide statistics. This year has been especially tough for everyone, and it's really important that we talk about mental health now more than ever. Talking about anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts is a big step towards taking away the stigma in asking for help. As part of stage four restrictions, a lot of construction sites are running at 25% capacity, so I thought now would be a good time to revisit Claudia's interview. We've just passed the two-week mark of stage four restrictions, and we're starting to see the rate of new infections drop. So there's a lot of really positives to look at, even when we are battling this pandemic and the social disconnection and stress the pandemic brings with it. So here's Claudia speaking to Michael Simmons from HALT. The following segment deals with mental health and contains references to suicide. If this is likely to cause distress for you, you may wish to tune out for the next 25 minutes. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression, or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Many people find it easy to talk about fitness and healthy eating, but are less able to begin a conversation about their mental health. They may be even less likely to register when they need help. 
but having a conversation about how you or someone else close to you is feeling need not be so hard. In fact, it's vital that we learn how, especially in these challenging times. One group that is giving people the tools to talk about mental health is HALT, a grassroots suicide prevention charity set up by two Castlemaine locals seven years ago. HALT stands for Hope, Assistance, Local Tradies. It's largely focused on tradies because they're an overrepresented group in Australia's suicide figures. Male tradies take their own lives at almost double the rate of other Australian men. And when it comes to construction, tradies are six times more likely to lose their lives through suicide than a workplace accident. Today I'll be speaking with Holt project worker Michael Simmons. He's a man on the ground at Holt and he's going to explain why those who work as tradies might find it difficult to talk about their emotional well-being. He's also going to tell us what Holt is doing to break down the barriers. So Holt is Hope Assistance Local Tradies and our job really is to spread the word of uh, men's mental health and promoting um, getting help, talking um, to your mates, um, going to see a GP, talk to a psychologist. Um, my real focus is don't do nothing, do something because it's not a great way to live. Um, and so that's really um, what Holt is all about. Um, previously, it was very much focused on the tradie, but because of the way uh, the community is, it then went to apprentices, um, it's mechanics, it's painters and decorators, it's guys who work at Blue Scope Steel, it's the, the, the ladies and gentlemen that work for Metro Trains, um, it's the mechanics that fix your car, the panel beaters that knock out the dent, um, and so on. So really it's become a community. Um, we've started to focus a lot on sporting clubs with the fact that most sporting um, leagues have all shut down. That's a big part of a lot of people's lives and tradies' lives. And, and with them all shutting down, they're missing a serious part of their um, social engagement, their physical activity, um, and their laughs and giggles on the weekend after a game. So we really see that as a, a big empty hole for them um, at the moment. And from what I'm hearing, this second phase is a lot harder to deal with. Mm. The first one was a bit novel. Um, a little bit of, I suppose, by the end of it, we'd, be, we'd become very good at isolating and, and doing what we were meant to do. And I think this second one has really caused a lot of people um, some grief. You know, something that we have to really understand is um, the hardest thing for someone with mental health problems is lack of control, lack of direction, lack of security. Um, and isolation. Well, we've been put into isolation. We have no, no control really over when it's going to finish or how it's going to look when it finishes, if it finishes. Um, and these are really bad things for people who struggle with mental health. So um, we need to be talking about it and we need to be getting the message out to, um, to everyone that there are some ways around it because Unfortunately, with eight suicides a day, um, two of them are female and, and six are blokes. And that's the stats on 2018. Um, I don't know what the figures will be now, but if you open up the paper, 
unfortunately, there's a lot of people taking their lives at the moment. I read a study that had just come out yesterday from Monash and um, it uh, revealed that of the study group, one in 10 people had had suicidal thoughts during the COVID period, which is enormous. It is. It is. Well, they say for every one that suicides, there are another 30 who contemplate um, mm. and try. Um, that's big numbers. That's very big numbers. And certainly with the pressures of, you know, finance, um, a lot of the tradies at the moment are working very hard um, because they have work because people aren't going away. So they're spending money on renovating and houses are still being built. So they're working really hard because that obviously nobody knows when that's going to end. So that puts pressure on the family at home with the kids and homeschooling. So relationship issues, financial issues, potentially not sleeping too well. Um, we know through the last COVID period, there was a lot of alcohol consumed. Um, so there, you know, there are a lot of triggers um, and COVID is creating, is going to cause a lot of financial issues with those that had to put their loan on hold because they didn't have the job. And at some stage, that's, they're going to have to pay that back. Um, and where do they get the money from if they don't have a job? So it's a lot of pressure on a lot of people. And that's, that's quite daunting. Can you share some of the reasons why people working in the trades industry might find it more difficult to talk about mental health? Uh, I think the, the tradies image is the stoic man. Uh, men are, are, are not very good at talking about their mental health. They're not very good about talking about a lot of things. But the trades, um, the 45s to 50-year-olds, which is, I think, at the moment, the highest group of uh, suicides, um, they have a lot of pressure through, A, probably years of not talking about their mental health issues. Now we've got financial and relationship issues thrown in and an overuse of alcohol. Um, and I don't need to go and see a doctor about it. I'll be fine. And, and it builds and it builds and builds. So I think that's one of the biggest problems that the tradies have. It's not manly to talk about your mental health issues. You will happily brag about a broken ankle, a damaged knee or a, or a tooth, lost tooth but you will not brag that you're struggling with mental health issues. And, and that's one of the things that Holt is very, very keen on doing is breaking down that stigma and using vulnerability as a strength. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to say that you're struggling and get help. Um, and vulnerability um, and having a cry is not a bad thing. Um, and the more that we talk about it and the more we get that message out, um, the more the young people will accept that that is cool. And hopefully then once they hit the 40, the 45s, they've either done something in their twenties to support themselves. They've created a lifestyle where mental health issues just doesn't come into effect. Or if they do start to feel a bit strange and a bit sad and, and maybe not quite right, that they immediately go put their hand up and say, I need to talk to my mates. I need to go. Has anyone else felt like this? Um, potentially straight to the doctor, doctor, I'm feeling like this. What is this? Um, and get to it early on instead of leaving it for 20 years of struggling. And I just did a talk um, out in Pakenham and a gentleman came up to me and he said, I'm so glad you spoke to me because I thought I had to live like this for the rest of my life. And he was off to go and see his doctor. How did that feel? Ah, 
That's why I'm doing the job. That's why I'm doing this. Because our rule is um, if we can get one, we're, we're on a roll. If we can do an event and get one person to change their life for good, it's really powerful and you know you're doing the right thing. Do people tend to stay in touch once they've made that step? They do, but what is really lovely is when you go back to visit a site, or they're happy to stand up as the ambassadors for mental health. Like, wow. I'm the one. I've had it, I've been there, and I've spoken to all the boys in the team, and they know that they're allowed to talk to me about it. And, you know, it's, if I could go through it, if I could get help, then so can you. So the survivor so hero Absolutely, platform. absolutely. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, that's really what, what you want. Um, so I say I did a panel beaters just recently and one of the guys sat there and he went, oh, excuse me, you're talking just about my life. So guys, anyone in here is struggling, I'm going, I've gone through exactly what he's talking about. So just feel free to talk, ask me any questions. I was like, thanks, I can go now. <laughs> do, you <laughs> think, do you think that before um, the issue of how you talk about mental health or having the courage to talk about it even arises that, there's an issue of awareness that some of the, the problems or experiences that you're having, whether it be relationships or alcohol, financial, are not actually related to mental health, that they're just the stuff of life and this is how life is. We have these ups and downs. Absolutely. Having... And they, you know, uh, again, as humans, we're very quick to sort of, you know, Dr. Google or, yeah, yeah, that's just because I'm, you know, I'm, I can't pay the bills. So, of course, I'm stressed or we're fighting over money again, you know, but they don't put the two together that, you know, being snappy, being angry, being sad, uh, not wanting to get out of bed and confront what's ahead are classic signs of, of anxiety. And if we went to the doctor then and had a chat, you can either have two things. One is no, mate, you're all right. You, you know, maybe you need to cut down on the grog and sleep a little bit better and, talk about this with your with your partner or no actually you do have mental health some anxiety and and you are a little bit overstressed and your blood pressure's up and you know let's let's see what we can do to work on that so it's a win-win either way um and and i think that's something that a lot of people again that's why we have people who've struggled for 20 30 years with mental health issues because they've just gone oh well this is how it is in life what sort of signs might indicate a person needs help? So one of the key things that we've, we always talk about is um, if, they're, if they're different to the way they are normally. So if someone is normally quite a, a quiet, relaxed person and all of a sudden they're over the top and their emotions are here, there and everywhere, uh, argumentative, and then that's a good sign. The same as if they're normally quite active, uh, social, and they find themselves sitting in the car, not wanting to come out, not wanting to socialize with anyone anymore. They're pretty good sign that something is not balanced. Uh, and and that's, that's the time you as a mate should be going up and saying, um, I've noticed that you're a little bit different. Are you okay? Do you want to talk about this? Um, and again, you get two, you get two comments. One is, uh, no, actually, look, life's a bit hectic at home. Just need a bit of time to sort something out. Or yes, I am in trouble. I, mentally, I'm not that. I'm not all there. Everything's going wrong. It's all pear shaped. I don't know what to do. And that's when a good mate says, "Right, well, let's call the doctor. Let me take you down to the doctors and let's have a chat." And if you've just tuned in to 3CR Monday Breakfast, I'm Claudia, 
And this morning I've been talking with Michael Simmons from the Hope Assistance Local Tradies Organisation, or HALT, about why tradespeople might find it difficult to start a conversation about their mental health. He's also explained what you can do to help as a mate. Now we're going to delve a little deeper to find out how different generations of tradies respond to these discussions and why young people are paving the road to destigmatisation. Here's Michael again. And that's that key thing about getting young people to understand that talking about it is okay because if they start talking about it at an early age, then you, you, you won't get into that position. You'll already know what to do. And it would just be like having the chat about the footy score or the whatever yeah. the normal banter Absolutely. is. Exactly right. Exactly right. So 100%. And look, I do a lot of work um, at Bunnings, uh, at, at my local Bunnings. Uh, when Before COVID, I would once, uh, once a week when they had their tradie breakfast, I would stand at the side and uh, we've got these lovely little constant companion cards that have got a little bit of support in there and a little bit of like, helping your mate. And uh, I'd happily hand them out very discreetly first thing in the morning. Nobody wants to have a big full-on discussion about their mental health. Um, but I'd just hand it to them and you tend to find the older guys are like, I'm fine. Uh, but the younger ones are like, thanks ever so much. That's really cool. I've got a mate who could, can I get another one of these? I've got a mate who's struggling. Um, and so it's, it, it is changing. And with the amount of, you know, advertising uh, and support, you know, if you go through your Facebook feed, your Instagram feed, the, the TV at the moment, there is so much mental health support about looking after yourself that if you, if you didn't know now that it would be a good thing to talk about it and go and see the GP, um, you're obviously not wanting to take in that information at the moment. And is there also a culture around actually asking someone about their mental health where you might feel like you're interfering or that you might, have, you might be overstepping the mark and that you shouldn't be inquiring? Look, we do, we do the, the tough conversation is, you know, how do you ask someone? And, and quite often it can be quite endearing to ask someone how they're going mentally. Um, the problem is I could be afraid of the answer. What if they say, no, I'm not okay. So we tend to be very good as Aussie blokes. Um, you doing all right? Yep. There you go. Done. Job done. I don't need to ask any further. What we strive for is, you know, you would look after your mate when you went to war. You look after your mate on the sporting field. Why shouldn't we be allowed to say you've been a little bit different? Um, is everything okay there? You know, uh, or even as the person to say, hey, mate, um, I'm not doing all right and I need to talk this through with someone. Can you listen? And that is definitely changing. And certainly in my community, I set up a little group called the Yeasty Boys. Uh, we meet once a month, uh, invited eight mates to the pub, said to them, look, I'm here to support you if you need any help. Um, do not hesitate in saying, hey, Mick, I need some help. Uh, and I, I promise you that I will happily ask you for help if I'm in that position. And the next uh, month, they all had to bring a mate with them that they would also tell that message to. You know, we're sitting at, after a year, we've got about 140 blokes on that, that sort of act, actively interact with each other through going for walks together, playing golf together, coming together at the pub and having a chat. Um, and it's not a woo-woo group. It is literally blokes knowing that, A, it's nice to go and have a beer with some other mates, B, if anyone's in trouble to support, 
And thirdly, if someone is in trouble, this is a place where you can bang on the table and say, help, I'm struggling. We've had it twice now where we've had a bang on the table and, and a mate sitting between his two mates said, I'm really not coping. Um, and it was perfect. They were there. They're like, well, we never knew that. So it was a fantastic thing. But it's that community talking about it and making it okay to say, I am not doing very well. And also that community where I'm allowed to put my hand up and say on my Facebook page, I'm not, not doing very well. Anyone fancy a walk? Mm. Because we need to normalize it. The, the stigma has no reason. There is no reason why there should be uh, something we're not allowed to talk about. Not dissimilar if it all goes a little bit pear-shaped to actually say to someone, are you thinking about suicide? Because from what we've heard, it doesn't make anyone more likely to suicide. But again, it's a, it's a good conversation if someone is really ranting, raving and not making much sense because there's two answers. Um, yes, I am. I am having strange thoughts and, you know, please help. Or no, but that's really, no, why would you think that? And then you can discuss about behaviour and discuss about um, how they're feeling and why you've come to that, you know, you, you, you know there's something wrong there. Um, and, and so that's, again, another tool to have. You as the mate don't need to be the counsellor. You need to be a good listener. And, and when we say a good listener, that's someone who can actually listen to the conversation. It's not a competition. My life's worse than yours. Oh, you think that's bad. Um, if someone has finally taken that opportunity to open up to you as a mate, you know, that there should be the respect there that you listen and that you, uh, you don't have to fix the problem, but you can be the bridge. No, no, that's exactly right. And, and that's, we're very, very, um, we really put that across. You're not, we're not the counselors, but we know some really good ones. We know some good doctors. We've got Holt friendly doctors. Um, we've got Holt friendly psychologists. So, you know, there are people out there who are very good at dealing with men's mental health issues. Um, we just like to spread the word. So what are some of the innovative ways that Holt operate? So we host lots of different styles. So one will be that an employer will call us and say, I'd like you to come and talk to my team. And we'll go in and um, I think we just did one in Caram Downs and they had 20 odd guys working with steel, came out, we cooked them bacon and egg rolls, uh, sausage, sausage sandwich. Um, and then did the talk out in the car park, socially distancing, everything good. And other times we'll go to a venue like Hip Pocket in Mornington and we'll put the barbecue there. We'll invite all the tradies. And so all the individuals can just come as they please. And do you have to be in a high risk category to come to one of your events or can anyone come mm -hmm. along? Anyone can come. Um, male, female, old, young, um, tradie, banker. It really doesn't matter. The, unfortunately, the mental health issues and suicide is, uh, it doesn't pick and choose purely on uh, what you do in your life. And, and again, it's that spreading of that beautiful message. You're not alone. Do something about it. And there's plenty of people out there who, will, who are willing to help. Is there an expectation that if you attend that you'll contribute or have to share what you're going through or be identified or can people come along anonymously and just sit and listen um, no, and feel absolutely. safe? Absolutely. It's a, it's a very safe space. Um, you do not need to talk about your feelings. I, when I do the talk, I will say, um, I'm going to ask a question, but none of you have to answer it if you don't want to. And 
it's a bit of both. So sometimes you'll get people put their hand up straight away. Yep, I've been to see a psychologist. Um, I've struggled with mental health. Others will come and tell you right at, as it ends. So I always say I'm going to hang around for another five minutes and there will be one or two that will want to come and tell you about their mental health struggles. And as, and as I say, there's always one that comes up and goes, right, I'm doing something. And we, we did a beautiful event not that long ago where a guy left it because most of the time we do breakfast. Um, he left it quarter past eight after having his bacon egg roll, went straight home to his wife and opened up to her about his 10 year struggle with mental health issues. And they both went and saw the local doctor. That's a great story. Boom. boom. Yeah. That's what you'd love to hear about every time you do an event. And, and because they happen, you know, we're talking the right language to the right people. And where does the pineapple on your head come into it? <laughs> well, that's, I discovered that um, when I was doing teams with a lot of people, um, there's a snap chat or snap filter that you can put on. And uh, yes, before you start a very serious meeting with the, uh, with, with the businesses, it's not bad to turn up looking like a pineapple or that you've got snorkel on and you're underwater. It <laughs> breaks the ice. It is a serious, it is a serious subject, but um, you know, we Aussies are very good at a good sense of humor. And uh, if we can't laugh, we'll cry. And sometimes a cry is good, but a giggles even better. So <laughs> that's the pineapple on the end and that was michael simmons talking to 3cr monday breakfast about halt the organization that provides assistance to tradespeople and others in talking about mental health and getting help the contact information for halt is halt h-a-l-t dot org dot a-u or facebook.com forward slash hope assistance local tradies you can access the Holt COVID-19 Wellbeing Toolkit on the website. It's a fantastic, easy-to-read information guide with all the nuts and bolts of what the organisation does, who can help, and what you can do to look after yourself and those around you. If the content in this segment has raised any questions for you or caused distress, please call Lifeline on 131114 or the Beyond Blue Coronavirus Mental Wellbeing Support Service, 1800 512 348. You can also contact your GP at any time. For an emergency situation, call 000. The Suicide Callback Service provides 24 hours anonymous phone counselling on 1300 659 467. And now here's the Melbourne Quartet Taste with Stand Up.
3CR Community Radio, 855am. You're listening to Monday Breakfast. Thanks for joining us. And I'm just going to give you a bit of a weekend roundup on some stories from Europe that I found particularly unsettling. Um and want to keep my eye on and just to check up on the developments here so one of that one of the news coming out of europe this this weekend is um in, from belarus so in belarus thousands gathered outside state television on saturday demanding full coverage of their demonstrations and these protests and demonstrations and this unrest country wide erupted after President Alexander Lukashenko claimed a landslide victory in last week's election on the 9th of August, the result of which has been condemned amid widespread allegations of vote rigging. As the protests and unrest continued on Saturday, Mr Lukashenko sought help from Russian President Vladimir Putin. Mr Lukashenko said Putin had promised to provide what he called comprehensive assistance in the event of external military threats to Belarus. The announcement came the day after EU foreign minister agreed to prepare new new sanctions against Belarusian officials responsible for falsification. And the US has condemned the election as not free and fair. So the, 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 Unrest happening in Belarus is something that I really want to keep a clear eye on. And some other news coming out of Europe. 
is that the US Secretary of State has signed a new defence agreement with Poland that will see American troops redeployed there from Germany. The deal will see the number of US troops in Poland rise to 5,500, and the Polish Defence Minister said the number could quickly be increased to 20,000 if a threat justified it. The US President Donald Trump has previously accused Germany of not contributing enough to NATO and is now looking to relocate troops from Germany to Poland. Last month, the US confirmed that almost 12,000 troops out of then 38,000 would be withdrawn from Germany in what is described as a strategic repositioning of its forces in Europe. This kind of military-focused news coming out of Europe this weekend amongst unrest and, and protests is something that's really unsettling to watch unfold. And so I think it's really important that here on Monday Breakfast we're going to be keeping an eye on that for you and trying to bring you the latest in updates military news that's happening in Europe. But now for a bit of a corona update Closer to home in Victoria. Yesterday, Victoria recorded 16 deaths with the coronavirus. 279 new COVID-19 cases. And 11 of those deaths were linked to aged care outbreaks. Dan Andrews said yesterday it was too early to tell when restrictions would be eased. But says he has a cautious optimism. And I just wanted to focus a little bit on the aged care outbreaks at the moment. So following the Royal Commission last week, Scott Morrison apologised for failures in the aged care response to coronavirus. And there is a lot to be sorry for. Rick Morton reports for the Saturday paper and released an article on Saturday about a government phone call that instructed senior health workers to deny elderly coronavirus patients access to hospitals. So two months ago, on June the 10th, the government said its response to outbreaks in aged care facilities and, although controversial, instructed New South Wales senior clinicians, nurses and leaders from the nation's aged care providers to keep the hospitals for the young. Many senior aged care workers begged New South Wales Health Deputy Secretary to listen to their response to the outcry and in return received devastating instructions which consequently failed on the greatest level for many of those residents. They warned that the older Australians had already died and they needed to discuss protocol. The Saturday paper spoke to five people from the phone call Janet Anderson was the key contributor from the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commissioner who reminded the concerned workers on that phone call that they were responsible for infection in their facilities under the Aged Care Act. So not only were aged care workers underpaid, overworked and responsible for infection, but they were not given enough protective gear either. PPE had been instructed only to be worn if a resident was tested positive or a suspected case and for no other reason. A union boss who gave evidence at the Royal Commission last week into aged care quality and safety 
described scenarios where personal care workers were limited to two pairs of disposable gloves per shift. And other statements from the health sector included workers putting their gloves in bags to be cleaned and reused by other staff. And the Royal Commission, the nurse, uh, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation Federal Secretary, Annie Butler, said there was a whole range of incredible breaches to infection control. According to Peter Rosin, Although there was a great deal done to prepare the Australian health sector more generally for the pandemic, the evidence will reveal that neither the Commonwealth Department of Health nor the aged care regulator developed a COVID-19 plan specifically for aged care centre. The concerned workers on the phone call to the New South Wales Health Deputy on June the 10th knew that by refusing hospital beds to the elderly, it would have major consequences in New South Wales, and it did. Those same workers also knew that it wouldn't be an issue experienced only in New South Wales, and it wasn't. Just weeks after this call, numbers in Victoria started to climb in aged care homes, and by the middle of July, outbreaks were being recorded across the state. Although Dan Andrews on Thursday said that those in aged care homes will be taken to hospital if necessary... That has not been the case and it has not always been followed. 400 aged care home residents are said to be in hospitals but with cases in the 2000s we know that it is still being managed at aged care facilities remotely. The aged care sector is in shock. Those who were on that phone call on the June the 10th felt a conscious decision was being made to keep hospitals for the young only, and the federal government would not be argued with or change that decision despite that phone call becoming quite tense at times. If you'd like to read the full article about the this phone call and the people that were involved and and really how the writing was on the wall early on and was completely ignored um then you can try and get a hold of the Saturday paper so that was published on the 15th of August and Rick Morton's article delivers a um a real insight into what happened on that phone call as well as the Royal Commission. You are listening to Monday Breakfast and this is Juliet by Creo. Wake me up in a little while These neon eyes are resting deep The rich yeah they've buried us wounded The heavy purse cause the sheep you're just waiting to shake the scene asunder With a heart still lost And nights I lose it wonder Cause now we sit and rock like words
heavy limbs and tired eyes Where we are the funeral weekends With eulogies at pen with rye And the electric sight The memories of your days And the streets were bright And brimming with a fresh blade G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong Stay safe and, of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Monday Breakfast and a big thanks to all our guests this morning as well. Look after each other. Look after yourselves. I hope you all have a good week uh, and please stay tuned for Women on the Line. Up next on 3CR.